I am Ben Mercer. I'm the missions and service pastor here at Scum of the Earth. I've been that for about seven and a half years. And before that, I was working for an organization called Prodigal Gatherings. And we worked with the street youth on the 16th Street Mall. We brought the love of Jesus to them in the form of socks and snacks and drinks, as well as conversations and Bible studies. We, we tried to support them and encourage them as they tried to get off the streets. One of the the interesting byproducts, one that I wasn't expected, expecting, was it built a relationship, a stronger relationship with me and my aunt, who in the past was a witch and now kind of dabbles in Native American spirituality. And so she's been kind of opposed to Christianity in, at certain times. But through both of our care for the poor, we were able to connect pretty and build a pretty strong bond. So when I moved to, to SCUM, I thought that that might carry over because not only am I working with Prodigal, but I'm also working with the Denver Rescue Mission in Sox Place and able to help even more people um, as they uh, are dealing with homelessness. But when I sent out a letter to she and some of the other people letting them know what happened, like how, th how my life was changing and what I would be doing, I got a response from her in the form of an email that asked me what my view of missions was. I really wanted to kind of play up the idea of helping the poor and social justice and, and that kind of thing and kind of downplay the idea that, that Jesus is the impetus for all of this, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he gives us his forgiveness and that without him we cannot, um, we cannot be in right relationship with God and we cannot reach heaven. But the more that I prayed about it, the more that I thought about it, I realized that the whole reason that, that we do serve the poor, the reason that I do care about social justice is because God cares about it, because God loves these people and he loves me, and part of me loving him in return is to care for these people, to love them as he loves them. And so I put all of that in my email to my aunt, and I never got a response. My relationship with my aunt was broken because I stood up for what I believed in. In the same way, the people that we'll be talking about today have had, were standing up for what they believed in, even with potentially horrible consequences. The three, three guys that we'll be talking about are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their Jewish names. Their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this is the story of the fiery furnace and the, and the three of them going into that and it's a story that I've known for a while. I grew up with this story, so it's really easy for to, to, to miss things as you're going through the story. And so as I was studying this, I ran across a few different things that, that I missed. And so I'll, I'll be mentioning some of those a little bit later on. But let's go ahead and go to the scripture. It should be right up there. Awesome. Thank you. So Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which is about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then they, the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. 
As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then this, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Like I said, this is a really familiar 
story. I still remember watching the, the flannel graph of it when I was in Sunday school. <laughs> and when th- something's that familiar, it's really easy for you to miss over, miss, to skip over things, to miss things. And so some of the things that I missed was the first thing, which is pretty obvious when I was studying it again, um, but it, I had to have a, one of the commentaries actually state it before I realized it. But we're never told what the, this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up was of. I always assumed it was a it was a statue of himself, a golden statue of himself. But it doesn't say that. It never says what it's what the image is of. It could have been one of the Babylonian gods. It could have been an obelisk like the Washington Monument. We, if you look at the dimensions, that would make more sense than anything else because it's. 90 feet by 9 feet, and I'm not quite 6 feet by about 2 feet, so that's like a 1 to 3 ratio, and the other would be a 1 to 10 ratio. So if it, if it was a human, it looks a lot, lot more like the dancing people in front of the Denver Performing Arts Complex than anything else. So we don't know what, it's, what the image is of. We do know, what we do know is that it was gold, that it was really big, and that it was meant to be worshipped. Which kind of brings me to the next point, which is that Nebuchadnezzar is really smart. He is the, the king of the known world at that time, which he had to have something going for him to, to achieve that rank. But he understood that he had all these, these peoples that he had conquered, all these peoples that were subjugated under him, and if he didn't want to deal with a rebellion every, every other day, he was going to have to do something to unify him unify them under him, under his rule. And so what did he do? He created this huge statue and and called them to worship it, called them to, to have this unifying religious experience to you know to cre- to create a, a some kind of unity underneath them, underneath him, so that they would be bonded together in some way. And he knew that, that these these nations and these people were not they all had their different gods. They weren't going to do this voluntarily. And so he created this negative punishment of getting thrown into a fiery furnace. And most people will, because they don't really want to die, they will go along with what you're asking them to do. But not only does he have this negative punishment, he also has, he uses positive aspects to entice people into going along with what he wants. He, if you look at the list of people it says that they were the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. So it's a list of politicians. It's a list of government officials. And what, what he's trying to do is, is create a place where you want to be. Because if you're invited, then it means that you're somebody. And if you're interacting with all these people, then you're getting to, then who knows who will see you there, and maybe you can kind of move up the ranks if you're seen by the right people. And so if, you, if you're if you going, if you're invited, that's that's a plus. And then if, you, if you're able to kind of schmooze correctly, then you can move up. And so that's another enticement. The final piece that he put together was that if you look at it, he created kind of a group think. If you look at the, the situation, you have this this image you have a bunch of important people, you have music, and it's on the plain of Dura, which is just outside of Babylon. To me, it sounds like Burning Man. <laughs> or like a pagan version of Cornerstone. So 
in, in, in instances like that, it's really easy to go along with what everybody else is doing, whether it's good or bad. And it's really hard to stand up, against, stand up on your own against what everyone else is doing. And yet in this, this circumstance, three guys did. You had Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael standing up for what they believed in, opposing everything and everyone around them. The final thing that I was thinking about while I was reading through this that I had not, hadn't thought about before was that what would have happened if they hadn't done what they did? What would have happened if, if they had bowed? They would have been just like everybody else, and there really wouldn't be a story. There would be no Daniel 3. It would go from Daniel 2 directly to Daniel 4 um, because it would, there would be no story. But what, if, what would have happened if they would have gone the opposite direction? What would have happened if they would have rioted? We're not going to bow to the statue and no one else should. And they started to riot. They could have, they would have, first off, they would have been shot full of arrows or cut down with a sword because they're rebel leaders. And that's what happens to rebel leaders. And they would have gotten nowhere near the king. They never would have gotten to speak their beliefs and give glory to God. And God wouldn't, and yeah, they would have never been able to give glory to God because they never would have gotten close enough to the king to to give the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. So what did they do? What did Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah do? They stood, obviously, but they stood with faith and humility and submission to God. If you look at the passage if that gives the description of what what they said to Nebuchadnezzar, you can see that. In verse 16 through 18, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, being King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They stood with faith and with humility. We see the in submission to God. We see the faith in the in the way that they that they believe that God can save them. They know that God can save them. It says, "The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and He will deliver us from Your Majesty's hand." They knew that He was able. He was that powerful. The, the humility is that they don't they don't try to st- to start a fight. They're not trying to debate. They're not telling King Nebuchadnezzar that they're that he's wrong. They're just stating what they believe and who their God is. And so we see that that humility in that, and we see their submission in in what co- comes after the 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 evidence of their faith. They say that God is able to, to deliver them from the fiery furnace, but then they end it with, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They have, they submit, they're submitting themselves to God and his choice on whether or not he saves them. They, they know that he has the power, but they also know that they don't get the choice as to whether or not he's, he saves them. God is the one who has that choice. Does this remind anybody else of somebody? To me, it reminds me of of Jesus standing before Pilate. He knew who he was. He knew the power that he had. And yet, he did not start a debate with with Pilate. He didn't 
start a fight, he simply stated that the authority that, that Pilate had was given to him by God and that Jesus was the Son of God. And he stated who he was, knowing all the power. He had that, that kind of humility. And so we see these three men exemplifying Jesus' character thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up. But they understood that because Jesus is God incarnate, and they were seeking to, to exemplify God's character. So what happens when we seek to follow them? What happened to them when, when they exemplified God's character? What happens to us? What happens when we seek to exemplify God's character? I think that there's three outcomes from that. You have God's salvation. God's, well, God is able to use his, God uses his power to save us or to save them. God is glorified and then God impacts others. And God's God's salvation in this in this scripture is very obvious. The, the, his power is very obvious. He saves them from the fiery furnace, but it's not what they expect, or it's not what they really want. They, I don't think. Well, they didn't really want to be drug up to the mouth of this fiery furnace. Watch these incredibly burly soldiers die next to them because it's so freaking hot. And then to fall into the furnace, that's not what they wanted. I'm pretty sure. But, but that's what, how God chose to save them. And because they were willing to submit to him and to su- submit to his will, they got to hang out with an angel inside of a fire furnace, which is pretty awesome. If I, I don't know that I would necessarily like choose that, but, but to be able to, to experience that is, is amazing. But in our lives, it's not, it's similar to that in that we don't get to choose how God saves us. And it's not usually how we expect. I have friends who have lost jobs. I have lost, I lost my relationship with my aunt. I have friends who have lost respect, have lost, I've lost hours at times. Um, all kinds of things that have happened because, because we stood up for what we believed in. And within these last three months since the year began, there have been Christians who have died in North Korea, in Nigeria, and in Pakistan, among many other lands. They died because they stood up for what they believed in. It doesn't always, we're not always saved in the way that God, or that we want to, but we're saved in the way that God wants us to be saved. And the funny thing is that, that they talk about God about God being able to save them out of Nebuchadnezzar's hand. If they would have died, they would have also been out of Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And I think that that's, sometimes God's salvation means going to that step, means going to the step of, of losing our job, of losing a friendship, of, of losing our lives. And yet, in the midst of that, we gain so much more. We get to spend eternity in heaven with him. We get to hang out with angels, not just in the middle of a fire furnace, but in heaven for eternity. The second, second thing that, that we see happen in this passage when they're willing to stand with faith and humility and submission to God is that God is glorified. In this passage, it's very obvious. Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, says, Praised be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. 
They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. God is glorified through Nebuchadnezzar, by Nebuchadnezzar, in this, in this passage. But he was also glorified through Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's submission to him, the actions that they did because they were in submission to God. And the same thing is true of us. I think of the story of Cory Tinboom, who is, she was, she and her family hid Jews in the midst of Nazi, the, the Nazi um, takeover of Europe in World War II. Somehow the Nazis found out they got, her entire family got thrown into prison and her dad died in prison. She and her sister went from prison into a work camp, and her sister died in the work camp. Corey was let go on a random technicality, which was God's provision for her, because two or three days later, all the women her age in that work camp were slaughtered, and yet she was able to go free. During the rest of the war, after she was set free, she was able to... she she was able to spend time with God and work through what she had been through and come to a place of, of forgiving the German people. And after the war, she went back into Germany as someone who was in this work camp and, and spoke God's forgiveness to, these, to the German people. She tells the story about one of the, after one of these talks that she did, she was kind of hanging out in the back, shaking people's hand and talking with them. And this man starts walking towards her, and she recognizes him immediately as one of the guards in the work camp that she was at. As, she was, as he was approaching, she knew that God was calling him to forgive not just the German people as a whole, but this man in particular, and she couldn't do it. She looked at him, and she remembered the ways that he had treated them in the camp, and it was, it was painful, and it was scary. But she she understood that that's what God was calling her to do. And so she submitted herself to him, and she called out for his love because she, and his forgiveness because she knew that she couldn't do it on her own. And so the man came up to her, and she, he said, I was a guard at the camp that you were at. And since that time, I've become a Christian, and I know that I did horrible things. I know that God has forgiven me, but I need you to forgive me as well. And because of what God had done inside of her, during as he was walking up, she was able to, to reach out her hand and to shake his hand and to forgive him. When I hear stories about this, how, how Corey exemplified God in his forgiveness and allowed him to work through her to forgive this man, it causes a reaction in me to want to exemplify Corey as she exemplifies Christ in forgiving others, in loving others. And as, I, as, as that feeling causes me to action, my actions are glorifying God. And that the same is true for all of us. We are all able to, to be a Corey or a Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as we stand up for, for God. We can be someone who inspires others to stand up. And in, in doing that, God is glorifying. So we see how God 
uses his power to save Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the fiery furnace. We see how God is glorified by King Nebuchadnezzar and how that applies to our lives. Finally, because they were willing to stand with faith and, and humility and submission to God, God is able to impact others. We've already seen how God impacted Nebuchadnezzar and to the point where he praises God, this, this pagan king who has a pantheon of God, of Babylonian gods, praises Yahweh God, the God of the Israelites, and, and he promotes him above any other God. And, and we see previously, we see that this is a progression because of what we're able to see through Daniel 1 through 4. We see the progression that, that Nebuchadnezzar is on. And in chapter 1, we see him realize that, that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel are more intelligent and they look better than all the rest of the, the captive princes that were put under, that were put through Ashpenaz's school of Babylonian studies. Um, but they, and, and I think that piqued his curiosity. And then in chapter two, we see how, how, how he praises God because Daniel is not only able to interpret his dream, but with no, no word from Nebuchadnezzar is able to tell Nebuchadnezzar his own dream, which is a miracle of God. Here we see him praise God again because Nebuchadnezzar saw the power of God as he saved Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In chapter 4, we'll get to see him submit to God, but I won't go too much into that because Adam gets to talk about that next week. But we see the progression of, of how God is working in Nebuchadnezzar's life. In our lives, we don't get to see that very often. We don't know how our interaction with the waitress that we have tonight at Greektown or the, the barista that makes our coffee at Starbucks or our coworker, or the guy in front of us in line at, at King Supers, how our interaction with them is going to affect them towards or away from God. But as we, as we live out our lives, we need to keep that in mind, that we are in, encountering people and how we encounter people is going to affect how they view God. The second, the second group of people that we see that are that are influenced that are impacted by Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah standing with faith and humility and submission to God are the the Babylonian leaders. In verses 26 and 27, it says, So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. They were witnesses. These, these governmental leaders were witnesses. They, they saw them go into the furnace and not, not burn up. And then they saw them afterwards. And I can, I can imagine them poking, poking these guys and like feeling their, their clothes just to see if there was any kind of heat to them. And there wasn't. They didn't even smell like smoke. I stand next to a grill for half an hour and I smell like smoke for the rest of the day. These guys didn't even smell like smoke. It's a miracle. And it had to have impacted these people, but we don't. The Bible doesn't necessarily tell us how. But I think that that's another encouragement that that we are, 
surrounded by witnesses as we live our lives. And God has the opportunity to to impact others through us. Um, my wife, Tina, was telling me about when she and Katie, when she went to see Katie at the salon, and and Katie's just asking about how what God's doing in her life and and just having this conversation about God in the midst of a salon where most of the time what's usually talked about is how men suck and um, and local gossip, I guess. I, I don't spend much time in salons, so I don't know. But... <laughs> But, but just they had they were talking about God in a positive way, and who knows what kind of impact they had on the people around them. I know that there's been times where we've had preaching team um, at different restaurants around Denver, and waitresses have come up to us and or waiters have come up to us and ask us to pray for them because they hear us talking about about God and or come with a, come to us with theological questions or biblical questions because they hear us talking about God, and that's an opportunity. God uses those opportunities to impact their lives in positive ways. The final people that that we see impacted by Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael's willingness to stand with faith and humility and submission to God is are the Jews, the Israelite nation. In verse 29 it says, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut off cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. This is hilarious to me. You have these, this oppressed people, this people that has been conquered, that are now protected by the king of Babylon, by the, the ruler of the known world, is now protecting this country that has been decimated because of the power, of, because he's seen the power of God. The... Just in three chapters earlier, right before, well, previous to the three chapters, before Daniel got moved out to Babylon, to Babylon, they, um, the king of Israel watched his entire family slaughtered and had his eyes gouged out before he and his entire nation was marched, was forced marched to Babylon and then subjugated for a number of years. And yet they, Yet now we see God act because of these because of these few men standing up to protect his people in the midst of of captivity the the Israelite nation and their their entire system was based around God, and so they as a people were were protected because of because these three men were willing to stand up and I think that this is true that we have opportunities to do that. When we are, like I said in, pre, in the previous two points, when we are willing to stand in submission to God with faith and humility, God uses us to give people a positive view of, of who he is and of his people. Multiple times I've had friends come up and talk to me about how, because I'm willing to meet them where they are, because other people, other Christians have met them where they are and not tried to argue them into a belief or look down on them because they don't know what they believe. When we're willing to have conversations, to care about them, to meet them where they are, God is able to use that to give them, to draw them to himself, or at least to give them an, an, a, a, a better view of Christians as a whole. So we've seen... 
three amazing outcomes of these three men being willing to stand in faith and humility and submission to God. We've, we've been able to see how God uses it to impact others, how God is glorified through it, and how God uses his power to save them. And we've seen how that can happen in our own lives, how God can use us in that way. So why don't we do that? Why don't we stand up more often? Why don't we live in faith and humility and submission to God in our lives more often? I think there's a few different reasons. I think one of them is that we get it, like I said just a little bit ago, we get caught up in arguments. When we were afraid that that if we don't convince them that Christianity is the right way, then something bad's going to happen, almost like we have to defend God. But when we do this, we put ourselves and our knowledge above God and his love. If this is something that you that, that we struggle with, one way to, to combat this is to, to talk to God, to interact with God, to re, and to read the Bible. And to understand what his character is. Because as we understand his love and his character, then God will use that to make us more loving. So that we will be able to meet people where they are and listen and hear why they, what they believe and why they believe what they believe. And give us an opportunity to talk, to have a conversation rather than a debate. I think another reason why we don't stand with faith and humility and submission to God is because we're afraid we're afraid that of being rejected. We're afraid of broken relationships. We're afraid of a loss of a job, a loss of hours, a loss of respect. And out of fear, we miss the opportunity to see God use his power to save us. And I think that if this is, like, in looking at fear, every time I, I think about fear, I'm reminded of 1 John 4.18, where John says that perfect love drives out fear. And so... If this is something that you deal with, if this is something that we deal with, then then seek God's love. Understand his love. John, 1 John talks about God's love and talks about how God is love. Like, read 1 John. It's an amazing book. And it talks about how love causes us to move. And so I would encourage you to, to read the Bible, to spend time with God, and ask him to reveal his love to you because he longs to do that. Another... the third reason why we, we don't stand with faith and humility is with, in submission to God is because we doubt God's power. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we say, then what God will be able to rescue out of X, out of whatever? I know that for, in my life, I've struggled with this, with, my, with addictions that I've had, with sin that I've, I've, that I've struggled with, with in certain cir- circumstances, either that I found myself in or that I put myself in. And at times it was I didn't it was hard for me to believe that God had the power to get me out of there, which is hilarious because he's the God of the of the universe. He created everything. If he can create everything, then he can get me out of whatever it is I'm struggling with, whatever I, I've found myself in. And so if this is something that you struggle with, then I would encourage you to read the Bible. Look at look at all the different ways that, that he has displayed his power. Read Genesis. Read, read about the, his creation of the world. Read about, read some of the Gospels and read how Jesus calmed the storm. Like, 
my life feels very stormy at times. And to have to read the parts in Matthew and Mark where he he does that is a peace to me. Not only that, but talk to each other. God has used his power to save so many of us in this room out of so many different circumstances. And so have conversations. Ask each other how God has saved you. Another way that I, another reason that I think we don't stand with faith and humility is because we're apathetic and we don't really care about God. I know that before, when I was in college, I was in that boat. I had grown up in the church. I knew that God loved me or loved the world and I knew that he existed, but it didn't really, I didn't think that it applied to my life. Until I started, I, I, I had stopped claiming to be a Christian, but my, I was listening to some Christian music, and my RA invited me to a, a Bible study. And the Bible, Bible study leader would call me every, every week that I did not show up to Bible study and just to say, hey, we missed you at Bible study, and, and how are you doing? And it, it was one of those things where I, I was... I didn't care about God because I didn't know that he loved me personally. And as this Bible study leader and, and other people who I knew were Christians and knew that God knew God's love were loving me because they knew that God loved me. As, as I saw that happen, as I saw God's love evident in my life through these people, I began to, like God used that to turn me around and to really understand his love and to, ha- to allow it to affect me. And so I would encourage you, if this is something that you struggle with, to look at the people that love you and ask them why they love you and ask them to to explain how they understand God's love. And look around your own life and see the ways that God loves you. He created everything around us, and so beauty is one of his ways of showing us love. So look at the sunrise in the morning and the sunset in the evening and the snow that can be horrific when you're driving through it, but it's really beautiful on people's lawns. Um, but look at look around you, and if you can't, if you still can't see it, talk to other people and ask them if they see God's hand in your life. Because sometimes other people can see stu- see things that we can't. And the final way that I think that we, the final reason why we don't necessarily stand up for what we believe is because we don't know what we believe. We claim to be a Christian, but it's been so long that we've read through the Bible that we don't know everything that it says, and we don't, and we haven't really taken the time to process what we, what we believe. In a long time, and so with that, I would encourage you to go to Leah and and Craig Blomberg's, Leah Everson and Craig Blomberg's class that's happening every other Sunday afternoon at four fifteen. It started this week, and so in two weeks it'll happen again. But they're going through the Old Testament and talking about each book. And I would encourage you to go to that. Learn more about the Bible. Learn about what you claim to believe. Study. Pick, the Bible is pretty accessible. We have some for free back in the, somewhere in this church. So talk to one of us on staff or talk to me, and I can get you one. But read it. Pick it up and read it. If you need a place to, to start you can start in Genesis. You can start in. You can start anywhere. Um, Mark is one of the, the the gospels that I really appreciate. Everyone told me whenever I started out that I should read John first, but it's kind of 
in ways he's kind of out there, and so Mark is pretty definite. So, so I like recommending Mark. But start in Mark, start in, start in Genesis. Psalms is, is gorgeous and amazing, and so you could start there. If you're looking for wisdom, Proverbs is always a good book to start in. But read the Bible. Understand what you believe. Romans is someplace that Paul does a very good job of, of lining out what Christianity looks like. And pray. Talk to God. Wrestle. It says multiple times throughout the um, in Paul's letters that to to work out your faith in, in fear and trembling. And I think and that means talking with God, thinking about it, writing, journaling about it. However you interact with it, like do those things and come to understand what you believe, so that you can stand with faith and humility and submission to God when those things are pushed against. Kind of to wrap up, there's a story about a, a priest, again, during Nazi Germany. His name was Maximilian Kolb, and he was a German, and he was because he was a Christian, he was put into Auschwitz. He ended up in Auschwitz. And because he was a German, who, or because he was a Christian who was hiding Jews, not all Christians were thrown into, into, into concentration camps, but he was because he was hiding Jews. <clears throat> he was treated incredibly poorly by the, the head guard, and yet he still was willing to, to stand up for what he believed in and care about other people. As towards the end of his life, he was there was a there was a prisoner who was who escaped, and they basically the 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 Germans were trying to figure out who this was who escaped so they could hunt him down. Nobody gave him up, and because nobody gave him up, they they took ten men to put in the to base to starve to death. One of these men had a wife and kids. Maximilian Kolb stood up and took his place. He, he sent this man back to the barracks, and he took his place and went to this starvation chamber. The, the assistant to the janitor of, this, of Auschwitz tells the story of when he was cleaning that area, Instead of moans, instead of wails, instead of cursing, he heard prayer. He heard worship songs. They, were, they would carry out dead bodies every day. And yet there was never any, any kind of griping or complaining. Because Maximilian Kolb was willing to, to go in there and to love these people, to love these death row inmates with him that were there with him when they couldn't when they couldn't speak because they were so gone they would whisper their prayers he would whisper confession to these men it eventually they decided that the germans decided that they that they needed the, the room to kill other people so they took the four people that were remaining out and they gave them, um, they injected them with, they gave them lethal injection to kill them. And Maximilian Kolb, the, the assistant janitor, went over to him as he was, as he was dying. And Max, Maximilian was 
still praying, still worshiping God in the midst of that. And it changed the, the assistant janitor's life. He became a Christian because of that. And he changed the entirety. He, he brought light into Auschwitz, which was one of the darkest places in the world at that time, because he was willing to stand for what he believed in, because he was willing to stand with faith and humility in submission to God. If I claim to be a Christian, my heart, my mind, and my spirit need to agree that God is God, and I have to submit to him. In doing this, God is able to do amazing things. He's able to, to more easily use me to reveal his power, to be glorified through my actions and through others' reactions to his power. And he is able to impact others. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You know where we are. And we, you know how much we love you and how much we don't love you. You know how much we will stand for you or won't stand for you. And you know the reasons behind that. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to you, that, we, that you would open our minds to you, open our spirits to you, that we would admit where we are and that we would seek you more. I pray that you would, I know that you are calling us and I pray that you would reveal your call to us. What is it that you want us to do to, to come to know you more, to submit to you, to stand with faith and humility? I pray that you would open our ears to hear you and that you would use that to change our lives. I pray these things in your name. Amen.